Two of the strongest pillars for the vaccine mandates are that the vaccinated spread the disease less than the unvaccinated, of course, and that they experience lower rates of disease. Are those two things true? Come on, we're going to find out today. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here, and it's uh, just a, a lovely rainy day in New England, and we're going to talk about a couple of pieces of data that have come out very recently that just make the whole rationale for a vaccine and vaccine mandate uh, a little bit more um, difficult to support from the logic and from the data. So let's go through the data. First, let's start here. Um, yeah. The mandate rationale, it just takes another blow, maybe not a fatal blow, but it's just it's getting trickier all the time to figure out who to trust and what to believe in. And so these are the headlines that just came out recently. First, in The Hill on uh, the 29th of October, we had vaccinated just as likely to spread Delta variant within household as unvaccinated study. We're going to go into that study. I'll show you the data. Of course, we always go to the data. This is interesting. They notice the word household in there, and that's important because the household is actually the place where you get the highest rates of spreading of SARS-CoV-2. And the reason for that is there are four Ds that, remember we talked about the four Ds a long time ago, that you want to minimize or optimize in order to avoid catching any viral-borne disease, but in particular an airborne viral disease. And those would be the density, the density of the people around you. How close is everybody, right? Um, you know, how many of them do you have who actually have the disease in a communicable form? Then you have draft. Hey, more draft is better, right? You want to optimize that as well. Distance, right? Um, how far away are you from everybody? So if you have a lot of people who are sick at a really close distance with no draft, obviously uh, you get into all sorts of difficulties with that. Um, and then how diffuse is, is this thing spread through the room? So at any rate, households are where this stuff tends to spread. So the UK did a really cool study, which again, we're going to go into. As you can see here, as I get my drawing tool out, uh, this is obviously of a lot of interest. Thousands, over you know, five and a half thousand comments there on the Hill. As well, here's a headline written slightly differently in Bloomberg. Vaccinated people also spread the Delta variant, year-long study shows. So this is important information because, of course, you know, one of the things we've heard is that the unvaccinated, according to some on the vaccinated side, are selfish because they're they're busy spreading this thing around. There's another way we could look at it, too, though, which is if this data is correct and the vaccinated are spreading just as much as or nearly as much as unvaccinated, then they should know that. Right. Because if you falsely believe that you are safe Right. Because even the president of the United States, what did he say? He said that uh, healthcare workers who are vaccinated cannot pass covid to their patients. Right. That's the president of the United States spreading what turns out to be incorrect information. So looking forward to a correction on that from Jen Psaki or the president himself soon, because um, that's really important distinction, because if you falsely believe that you can't communicate a disease because you're vaccinated, but you can well, now you're putting your you're putting people at risk, uh, potentially even somebody who is vaccinated, even double vaccinated, who's elderly or with comorbidities, they are still at risk. And we're going to show you data around that as well that comes to us from Sweden. Two really interesting papers that begin to crisp up what we know, what we don't know about this disease. Here's the paper um, and the disease and how it spreads. In the Lancet, I told you I put the Lancet on double secret probation after uh, the Surgisphere fraud and the other fraudulent papers they ran. That was just horrifying. So I, I'm a little, 
I don't like quoting the Lancet much anymore, but this is where it came out. So let's go there. I guess I can't throw every baby out with the bathwater, but uh, the, the paper is Community Transmission and Viral Load Kinetics. That's how fast the, the disease um, comes into a, a, a large amount in somebody's body and how rapidly that goes away again. That's the kinetics, viral load kinetics of the SARS-CoV-2 Delta variant. That's the very handily named B.1.617.2. The Delta variant in vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals in the UK. A prospective longitudinal cohort study. A lot of authors on here. I will tell you, they did a really good job in this study. Um, It's very complete. Uh, I read it all the way through. Didn't find a lot of places I was going to pick it apart um, methodologically. So the methods look pretty good. So let's start here with their discussion. First, in the first yellow part up top, quote, Households are the site of most SARS-CoV-2 transmission globally. In our cohort of densely sampled household contacts exposed to the Delta variant, SAR was 30, uh, that's the SARS attack rate, S-A-R, was 38% in unvaccinated contacts and 25% in fully vaccinated contacts. This finding is consistent with the known protective effect of COVID-19 vaccination against infection. It is consistent. Um, We did see that more unvaccinated contacts had a higher attack rate, 38%. So in a household, somebody comes in carrying SARS-CoV-2, 38% of that household, if they were unvaccinated, would get infected, whereas it would be 25% if they were vaccinated. So 38 to 25. The issue is when you look at the numbers, that's not a statistically significant difference. Um, So it didn't achieve significance. I'll show you the data down below. In green, continuing, quote, notwithstanding these findings indicate continued risk of infection in household contexts despite vaccination. So uh, yes, they say this is, you know, finding is consistent with known protective effects of COVID-19 vaccination against infection. But despite that, people who have or are fully vaccinated can still spread the infection throughout their household. So there's that. Um, Continuing all the way down here in yellow again, quote, it says, suggesting that susceptibility to infection increases with time as soon as two to three months after vaccination. That's a finding they came up with, consistent with waning protective immunity. Now, we've all known about this for a while. We've heard about the boosters. There's really no surprise here, but they've got some good data on this. In fact, the whole paper is worth it. I uh, didn't put all the tables in here, but they have a lot of samples of where they were looking at viral loads in people, and they would do it over and over and over and over again, not just one snapshot. They would take a snapshot a day or every other day. So they have a really complete record of how quickly and forcefully the virus is coming into um, a peak load in, in people. So at any rate, they were able to detect within this data set that just two to three months after vaccination, uh, the vaccination's waning and they start to see a higher susceptibility to infection uh, just within a couple of months. Continuing in green, quote, household uh, SARS attacks rates for Delta infection, regardless of vaccination status, was 26%. Regardless of vaccination status. Doesn't matter. Vaccinated, unvaccinated. The attack rate for Delta was 26%. So that's equal. equal. Vaccinated or not, same number, which is higher than estimates of UK national surveillance data, which suggests it's about 10.8%. The reason for that is that these people sampled everybody in their study, regardless of whether they had symptoms or not. So they have a much more complete record, whereas 
the surveillance data from the UK, those are people who are getting sampled because they have cause to be sampled. They have symptoms or they are around somebody with a lot of symptoms, but they sort of self-checked in to get to get tested. Here, they're testing the whole household. So whether you're vaccinated or not, what they found was about 26% chance of coming down with a SARS-CoV-2 or COVID infection if you live with somebody who has it, and it doesn't matter if they're vaccinated or not, or if you're vaccinated or not. Comes up with that number. All right. Um, continuing down again uh, in down there, quote, however, we sampled contacts daily, regardless of symptomology, to actively identify infection with high sensitivity. By contrast, symptom-based single-time point surveillance testing probably underestimates the true SARS attack rate and potentially also overestimates vaccine effectiveness against infection. Now, this is a really important point because this is exactly what Pfizer did in their first study when they said, you know, they took, you know, 42,000 people, roughly half were vaccinated or not, but they didn't test everybody in that, in that whole uh, scene. They just tested people who became symptomatic for or presumptively symptomatic for COVID. So again, the only way you can really get good data is by testing everybody, something I've been saying since the beginning. This study did, did that. They tested everybody. And it's a whole year-long study. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, which is totally accurate, which is, well, look, the vaccinated may get uh, an infection, and they may pass it, but they don't get symptoms, and they don't go to the hospital. So those are great points, which is why this most recent paper, which is a preprint, uh, hasn't been through peer review yet, they just came out of Sweden. Good-looking paper, though. Uh, it feels uh, you know, pretty solidly done. And uh, here's the title of this paper, Effectiveness of COVID-19 Vaccination Against Risk of Symptomatic Infection, Hospitalization, and Death Up to Nine Months, a Swedish Total Population Cohort Study. This is a big study. They matched a lot of people against a lot of other people. So this uh, just came out very recently. And this is really cool study because what did they do? Well, let's talk about this. Um, first up, what they're looking for is what happens after like six months um, for these vaccines. And they want to know about the, the effectiveness against disease. So the prior paper was just saying, look, with Delta in, in play, whether you're vaccinated or not, you have about the same uh, capability of, of transmitting it or passing it on or infecting somebody else. So this is asking the question, well, if somebody does get infected, then what? Here they did a retrospective cohort study. So they're looking back in time uh, in their databases and they're asking the question, who was vaccinated, who wasn't, what were their outcomes? This was conducted using Swedish nationwide registries. The cohort comprised 842,000 pairs that's uh, 1.684 million people total, including individuals vaccinated with two doses of this vaccine right here, the mRNA one from Moderna, the Pfizer. Uh, so those three vaccines and matched to unvaccinated individuals. So when you're matching, what are you matching for? Age, comorbidities, gender, things like that. So, so when you match them, we could say, well, we have Two guys, one vaccinated, one unvaccinated, 40 years old, both relatively fit. Now we can compare what happened to them. So that's what they mean by matched here. Cases of symptomatic infection and severe COVID-19 hospitalization or 30-day mortality after confirmed infection were collected from 12 January to the 4th of October. 
So yeah, we got about 10 months of data in there. Uh, that's a pretty, pretty big study. So what did they come up with? This is really cool findings here. First quote in the yellow up top, vaccine ineffectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine against infection waned progressively from 92% at day 15 to 30, where people had max sort of antibodies, max protectiveness was at days 15 to 30, all the way down to 47% at day 121 to day 180. So within six months, this thing had gone from 92% effective, and this is just against an infection again, to about under the 50% mark. Now, why is that important? Because the 50% mark is the mark that you have to hit if you're a vaccine manufacturer to show that you have a protective benefit. That that's the Remember they always said that was the line and then where everybody's thrilled because Pfizer hit 92%. So these are very statistically significant um, uh, findings here. And then they say from uh, day 211 onwards, no effectiveness could be detected. So it's like, nothing's happened like we're back down to close to zero but this wasn't a significant finding um they couldn't dif differentiate whether it was uh went from the confidence interval here goes from minus two to 41 so it goes below zero so uh p.07 not 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 a strong finding that one continuing in green quote the effectiveness weighed slightly slower for mrna 1273 moderna being estimated to 59 percent from day Eight one eighty one and onwards. In contrast, um, the Chad Ox one, the Oxford vaccine, there was generally lower and waned faster, with no effectiveness detected from day one twenty one and onwards. Continuing in yellow down here, overall vaccine effectiveness was lower and waned faster among men and older individuals. So we're starting to put a story here, which is to say that if somebody is vaccinated, if they're male or older, or both, uh, then you're going to want to understand that from about six months onward, they, they're, they're still at risk. They are back to being at risk again. Continuing in green at the bottom here, quote, for the outcome, severe COVID-19, that's the outcome they were tra tracking there, uh, severe COVID-19, effectiveness waned from 89% at day 15 to 30 to 42% from day 181 and onwards with sensitivity analyses showing notable waning among men, older, frail individuals, and individuals with comorbidities. So now we're just back to the people you would normally put into your critical category, which is older, frail individuals and individuals with comorbidities. But we're also tucking men into this uh, data set here. So that's what they found. Here's what it looks like on a chart. And in blue, we have protectiveness, the vaccine effectiveness, the VE, first against here, which is just infection, which could be symptomatic, could be asymptomatic, it's just infection. And we see that that peaks out at about 92%, crosses below that magic 50% barrier here at about half a year, and plummets and heads right on down towards zero there. Here we see the vaccine effectiveness for severe COVID infection. So this means you're, 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 Pretty strong symptomology, if not in the hospital, if not worse. And the effectiveness is a little higher, and it tails off with about six months. It crosses the 50% mark. Tails off to here. This is where their study went to, only went this long. So they had to sort of guess what they think was going to happen. Looks like a fair guess there, what that dotted line might suggest. Um, something like that. So still, it's 20% effective here, closing in on three quarters of a year. 
What this is really arguing for, though, is the idea that this vaccine effectiveness really does wane. And this is why people talk about wanting to put boosters on. And those boosters probably need to be at the six-month mark, if not before. But you'd have to decide where you draw on the line. Are you saying we want 80% infection uh, protection levels? Then you would have to draw the mark here. I mean, sorry, 60%. If you want 80%, you're going to need to draw the mark here, which is barely 90 days in. So if you wanted to say, hey, we want everybody to be 80% uh, protected against infection, you're on a 90-day booster program, according to this, assuming the boosters behave the same as the earlier injections. Maybe, maybe they last longer. Maybe they last less long. We don't know, uh, don't have that data yet, obviously, because here we are nearly two years into this, and we're just getting this data now. Uh, we should have had it before before now. This is what an endless booster cycle might look like if you gave it at the half-year mark, something like that, my crudely drawn little uh, endless uh, mountain range there. That's what it might look like if it behaves the same. It might be different than that. We don't know. But the point here is, is contained in the word endless because these things are just going to continue on for a long time. Now, why is that? For whatever reason, nature and coronaviruses and humans have worked out a deal where humans will retain very durable, long-lasting antibody protection, more than that, immunological protection against viruses and some bacteria, some of them for the lifetime of that individual, right? If you get chickenpox, it's a kind of a once-a-lifetime once a deal. Mumps, kind of a once-a-lifetime deal. Things like that. You get it once, your body remembers it, not allowed back in the door. But coronaviruses... They come and they go. Our body has just decided, eh, I'm not going to keep a, keep a memory of that thing. Don't know why, but that's why we typically would get colds over and over and over again, even though you're being exposed to pretty much the same cold coronavirus, the HKU-9, something like that. So that's just the deal. So here we are. The question would be, does it make sense to try and fight a coronavirus with uh, injections like this? We'd have to argue about it and debate it because it may not make sense in a coronavirus environment where this is the pattern, particularly since we do know that so far the data says, particularly the Israeli data, that the natural immunity you might get looks very, very different from this. It's more durable and longer lasting. The reason is pretty simple to explain. The virus is a very complicated thing with lots of different pieces on the surface when you get the injection, you're getting just one snippet, one piece of information across the whole top of this outside of the virus. Your body makes antibodies against that one part. When you get exposed to the whole virus, you make antibodies against all these different parts, different things like the E protein, the N protein, the S, the spike. And when you have a much more robust, more polyheterogeneous sort of a, a response, then it seems to last longer for whatever reason. That's what the data says so far. All right, so as we look in this, this is kind of interesting because a permanent vaccine schedule may thwart what we're actually after in this story, which is what? Which is to have this virus just be out there. We've struck some sort of a bargain with it over time. It's become slightly less deadly. We've become more immune to it, including natural immunity or whatever. We've, we've come to some deal with it. The issue here shows up to us in the week 42 COVID-19 vaccine surveillance report out of the UK where they note where they were doing seropositivity tests for people. So they're looking for both the S protein antibodies, the spike protein antibodies, which could come from a natural source or from a vaccine. And they were comparing those and looking for the N protein um, 
uh, antibodies in there. So these N proteins, if you have those, you didn't get N protein antibodies because of exposure to a vaccine. You only could have gotten the N proteins from a natural immunity. So they were looking at that. And the interesting finding is down here in yellow, number three, quote, recent observations from UK health security agency surveillance data that N antibodies appear to be lower in individuals who acquire infection following two doses of vaccination. Let me decode that. So for an individual hasn't been exposed to COVID, gets two vaccinations, and then hey, is in one of these households, gets a COVID infection. Turns out that when you measure their antibodies against the N protein, they don't have the N protein antibodies or they're lower in there. So it means that two doses of vaccination is preventing or potentially blocking or thwarting that natural immunity response. This is something that came up in our interview with Geert Vandenbosch. He talked about it. This falls under the term of something known as antigenic sin, potentially. Antigenic sin is the process whereby your body received the vaccines. It became primed to fight that thing. And so when it is exposed to uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the future, it doesn't spend time fighting that. It says, oh, I, I know how to do this. And it just spends time remaking the old antibodies that it made before. It doesn't spend time trying to figure out a, a new method for fighting this invader once it sees it again. Hey, that's nature being efficient. That efficiency, though, seems to thwart natural immunity. So to the extent to which we would want natural immunity to emerge so that we can avoid being on this treadmill forever, this may be a complicating factor here. This is why vaccines, vaccines development, and the whole prospect of vaccines in a public health setting is actually a very complicated subject, and it needs to be talked about with a lot of rigor. All right, that's kind of an interesting finding there. Here was the bombshell for me that came out of the end of this Swedish paper. Now here, what they're talking about is the vaccine effectiveness here, okay? So, and this is for symptomatic COVID. You can see here, they've got a very tight range, uh, the black line and the, the gray is a, are the error bars in this story. The error bars obviously get larger the further out you go. But they note here that vaccine effectiveness comes all the way down. And if their extrapolations are correct, it not only comes down to zero, but potentially goes below zero. Hey, you know what? This might be the correct line and it might do this. It might end up over here and stay above zero the whole time. Or it might go below zero. What does that mean? What, how does vaccine effectiveness go below zero? Well, it turns out that after a certain time, people who've been exposed to the vaccines and then later to COVID, after a certain period of time here, this might cross zero in, in their particular extrapolation here at about day 240. It would mean from that day forward, without another booster, the people who are double vaccinated are actually more at risk of developing symptomatic COVID than somebody who is not been vaccinated. That's what the paper says. It was kind of a surprising finding. I didn't expect to see that. Wider error bars on this, but this is uh, uh, for severe COVID, which could include ICU and death and stuff like that. So again, very wide error bars out here, super wide. Uh, this tends, their model has this staying above zero, which is very helpful, but they can't preclude the possibility it goes below zero as well. So we don't know. We're just going to have to track this over time as things develop. But again, this is why I argue for more data, more data, more data. We just need more data and then we can make better informed decisions over time. Makes sense, right? All right. Um, so yeah, why do we need more, more better data? Listen, we need better data because 
if we want to make a logically sound set of conclusions, we, we want to, we need a logical and sound set of data for that. And then we would actually need to start comparing the vaccines and their long-term outcomes to natural immunity or early treatment. Now, you know me, I like to set things up and frame things a little bit. So this is what an actual proper study would have looked like. Given all the billions and billions and billions of dollars thrown at this, could we have spent $500 million designing a proper study, please, so we could have gotten this? This is what it would have looked like. We would have said, oh, we're going to design this study to test the effectiveness of any particular vaccine candidate. So this is, this is where the Pfizer study started and stopped, right here. They just put it, they vaccinated some people, and uh, they left some controls unvaccinated. So that's what happened. But if we were doing it right, we would care further. We'd say, well, if we put it into a vaccinated person, let's be sure we track those who had prior natural immunity. So we can track things like the S protein, the N protein, other things like that. Does it boost downstream protected, protective VE against infection, serious COVID, stuff like that? And then we'd also compare those to the naive people. So they're vaccinated, but they've never had COVID before. So we would be able to compare those two groups. But once each of those people in those groups got COVID, we would then want to compare what happens if we give these people early treatment versus no early treatment. And the naive population, they get COVID, early treatment versus no early treatment. Same thing in our control group. We have unvaccinated, but there are those who have prior natural immunity. There are those who are naive. Same thing. Each of them comes down with COVID again. Great. Let's compare early treatment to no early treatment. All the way down. Once you do that, now we have a complete data set where if you're a public health administrator or you're a parent with a child, you get to look at this data and make the decision for yourself. Hey, what makes the most sense here? How, you know, how would I go through this? And where are the risks really lying? The problem is we don't have any of this data out here. Nothing, we have nothing out here in this part, except we have clues. Nothing out here. We have clues about this stuff based on the Israeli data, which gave us a little bit of information about prior natural immunity, which was great. But we don't have any data at all comparing this early treatment to no early treatment across these different cohorts. So we, oh, sorry, Leo, let me put that back. See if you can slide it right into that window without any white edges and then just go back to that last line. But what we don't have is we don't have any, any data yet about the difference between early treatment and no early treatment across these different groups. So we're just flying a little bit blind here at this point in time. But in fact, if we were going to do this really well, you know what we would do if this was about public health? We would have done this study, which looks exactly like the earlier study, except the first thing we did is we boosted everyone's terrain. Everybody gets vitamin D in the mail. Everybody has the, all the vitamins and, and supplements they need to have a healthy, active terrain because, as we know, there's two ways that your body fights an infection. One is with this antibody response, which is a very narrow thing that can be done. But the other way is by having this boosted natural terrain so that your whole immune system is tuned and ready to fight a big fight and it'll do better. And so how would we do that? Well, these are all the supplements I personally take to boost my terrain. I don't know why I can't tell you what this has been due to. I have not been sick uh, since COVID started. So maybe it's because I just don't hang around people all that much anymore. Maybe it's because we're being more careful in general. Or maybe it's because I finally learned what's necessary to really boost my terrain. And so my daily input includes this and this and this and this and this. 
That's on a daily basis. A pretty strong, pretty strong fan of this stuff down here too. Um, some of these other ones here, I take uh, when, when I if if or when I get ill. This and this and this. Um, they're just sitting there, but I haven't really gotten ill in a long time. So that's the benefit of COVID. This has been the most amazing part. Is I feel like I've learned how to regain control of my health, and uh, I've learned a lot of fairly dark things about the industry, such as it's arranged that would l prefer I didn't know this stuff, and that you wouldn't know about this stuff either, because uh, that's not—they don't make their money um, with you being healthy. That's part of the story. Has been for a while. Conclusions for today. Um, oh, wait, and before I get totally down into these conclusions, let me just tell you that um, we're going to be discussing more of this here in part two. And part two, we're going deeper down. Let me just tell you, this is really the subject of part two. I think you can read between the lines um, about what that title is going to be about. So we're going to talk about that. Plus, just yesterday at Peak Prosperity, I sent out an alert. I don't send them out very often. An alert is a piece of information or a collection of data that causes me to personally take some kind of urgent actions in my own life. The shortages and economic uh, fallout from, from what's happening with all the supply chain issues is very dire right now. So go take a look at that alert if you want to be apprised of what's coming and going around that. All right, so the conclusions for today. Episode 34, uh, current vaccines do not prevent a Delta variant within households. That's UK data. It's just data is what it is. Next, current vaccines drop below the 50% effectiveness barrier within five months for infection, six months for severe COVID. That's the Swedish data. We also learned from that same Swedish data that men, the elderly, and those with comorbidities are at even higher risk of an early drop-off in that VE, the vaccine effectiveness. Swedish data. Thus, the um, all the main logic arguments for mandates are not really founded in either data or logic at this point in time. The only thing we can say is that for a period of time, the vaccines do prevent people from getting more serious COVID, and that's a good thing. It's more true, the effectiveness of that and the benefit of that is more true for people who are at more at risk from COVID in the first place. So it's a more complicated story. But as you and I know, the elderly and those in particular with comorbidities, those are the people most at risk in this story. And so... The mandates then are, if they're really predicated on the idea that we need the vaccine so that we can prevent the spread of COVID, that doesn't work anymore. And if we're saying we need these vaccines because uh, they are going to provide lasting effectiveness against severe COVID and death, that's not the case. So we know those two things are, are no longer true. So worse in this story for me, though, is that vaccinated people may falsely believe that they're safe or safer to others in society than the unvaccinated, but that's not the case. And so they can still transmit this disease. Now, you might say, well, but on average, vaccinated people are gonna get a less severe course of the disease. True, but not completely true. It's not 100% true. It's actually not even close to 100% true. We know from the Israeli data and from the UK data that the vaccinated, fully vaccinated, double vaccinated are showing up in the hospitals and are dying. That's still true. So can't say it's not black and white as it's been presented. It's not like you're vaccinated and safe and unvaccinated and unsafe. That's not the case. There's risks across this whole structure. So the advice here is for everybody to still you know, keep your caution. Remember those four D's, but in particular draft and distance and the density, you know, being in a really uh, 
closed air environment with a lot of other people is still risky. And according to this data, it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not. The only thing that really seems to matter is the younger you are, the safer you seem to be. And the healthier you are, the safer you seem to be. With one little wrinkle in there, um, bodybuilders seem to be especially at risk from this thing. It's kind of a strange thing. Might have something to do with their muscle mass. I'm not clear about that, but that data has also come through kind of anecdotally. But there's too many cases there for it to be um, a non-signal at this point. Finally, but most importantly, vaccines, they don't deliver herd immunity. They don't. This is something Anthony Fauci should have known, does know, but has chosen to pretend as if he doesn't know this whole time. And I've talked about that being the case right from the very beginning. They, they can't deliver herd immunity if they don't prevent you from catching and passing on the disease. It's an impossibility. Full stop. End of story. And they may, vaccines may even thwart development of a more durable natural immunity because that's a, the N protein UK data. Actually, we don't have data. We have a statement. Um, I haven't actually seen the data yet, so I'm, I'm going to go hunting for that. This, too, deserves discussion. Those are my conclusions for today. We should be talking about all of this. What are we willing to give up? What's the, what are we willing to sacrifice? How much are we willing to bear in order to achieve what? Well, what are we trying to achieve? That's what I think has been lost in this story is that, is that articulation of exactly what the goal is here. Without moving the goalposts five more times, what's the goal? And the goal really ought to be lowering the mortality and the morbidity of people in a pandemic. And if this is where the pandemic numbers would have been without interventions, with interventions, you'd want to see the data down here. Your interventions should be working. In part two of this, I'm going to show you strong data that suggests it's actually not working. But we're going to have to examine why that might be. So we'll go there next, and I hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening to this. I hope it stays up. We're just talking data. This is the kind of conversation we should, we should be having, though, is articulating the nuances of this so we can make informed decisions. So be safe, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time.